I bring you greetings from Grace Church in Greeley, Colorado. And uh, we, we do have a special kinship, I think, between our churches. When I come here, I feel right at home, just hearing the buzz before the, before the service started, seeing everybody cheerfully catching up, getting ready for the worship of the Lord's Day. It's such a joy. It just reminds me of being home and um, reminds me of a church that is filled with love and brotherly affection for one another. That's certainly what we have, and it's so good to see the same thing here. I spent the last week doing some teaching in Cape Coral, Florida, and it was on a survey, kind of an introduction to the New Testament for the students that are there. Last year, I came out and did the Gospels and Acts, and this year I did the Epistles and Revelations, so kind of finished up the New Testament. Cover to cover in the Bible, really, but specifically so in the New Testament, we see the saving work of God. We see our God as a savior, his heart for sinners, his love for people. We see the, his love for people expressed in the incarnation of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us and bought us back from sin and slavery to Satan, from certain death in hell. He has bought us back, saved us, and set our souls free That is his intent from Genesis to Revelation is to show himself a savior for his people, his just and the justifier of all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is focus our attention on a single verse in the Gospel of Luke. And you could turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning in your Bibles and turn to Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that verse, that single verse, neatly sums up the mission of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And just to set that verse in its context, we'll go back to the start of the chapter in Luke 19.1 and read the account that came before it and see how Jesus came seeking to save a man named Zacchaeus. The text says, Luke 19.1, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. And said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and freely and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restored fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It may appear from our reading of the text that Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. And in some sense he was. He was seeking to see who he was. But clearly we can see by the end, we, inter- we look back at that, look at that verse in 
in chapter 19, verse 10, and look back and interpret the rest of that narrative through that lens, that actually it was the Savior seeking him. He went to the place where Zacchaeus was, and immediately he looked up and found the man. He found him. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In that one sentence, Jesus has summarized the mission of the Christ, the mission of the Messiah. He's boiled down that mission into its bare essence. His whole life, his entire life's work, every miracle he has performed, everything he's said and done, every demon he cast out, every sickness that he and disease that he healed, every truth that he taught, every sermon he gave, it all comes down to this. Jesus came down to earth on a search and rescue mission. He came to seek lost sinners and then save them from the gravest danger known to man. The sentence that hovers over every man, every woman, every boy and every girl, it's the sentence of death. Not just physical death, the non-operation of the body, but spiritual death. Suffering the righteous wrath of a holy God in hell as the due punishment for sinning against this God. Now, that mission statement in Luke 19.10 would be an utter failure if Jesus was unable somehow to overcome his own death, would it not? In fact, in only a week's time after making that statement, Jesus would be hanging on the cross, dying. So such a grandiose mission statement, about saving the lost would ring pretty hollow, wouldn't it? Had Jesus not risen from the dead, had his body remained in the tomb, his entire messianic claim would have been an object of scorn, a cause of mockery and laughter, and ultimately relegated to the trash bin of history had he not risen from the dead. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we are still talking about it. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, because his tomb is empty, because God raised his son from the dead. After Jesus appeared to his people, God took him to heaven, seated him at his own right hand to await his return for part two of his mission, which is still future to us. So since the the tomb is empty, and since Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, since he has conquered death, It would serve us well to go back and pay close attention to what he has said, to see what he taught, to listen carefully to all he preached and taught his people. So that sentence, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If you notice it in your Bibles, it begins with a subordinate conjunction, the word for. So that is for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, The word for provides an explanation of what Jesus said in verse 9, namely this, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. And then it's followed by the explanation for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. To the many who were listening on this occasion, that explanation was necessary for them. It wasn't obvious to them that a deplorable character such as Zacchaeus, who was a a chief tax collector, basically like the tax 
commissioner for that whole region that was centered in, the headquarters centered there in uh, Jericho, he had betrayed his own people for the chance to rob them. He used subordinates to shake people down, to take away their hard-earned income. So it's very hard to see for these people how Zacchaeus, this Zacchaeus, could be a son of Abraham and heading for heaven. It actually offended them, deeply offended them, that Jesus would receive this man's hospitality, that he'd go into this man's house, and even worse, that he'd seek it out. So Jesus here... He's explaining his actions. He's trying to help them to resolve the tension that they are feeling by telling them how this is, this is not only pertains to his mission, but it has been his mission all along. For the Son of Man came for this purpose, to seek and to save the lost. Now, that is really, really Good news. For anyone who knows that he's lost, that's good news, right? For those who don't see themselves as lost, well, the good news this brings is lost on them. The scene before us is similar to the one back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus came and sought seeking another tax collector, a man named Levi. You don't need to turn there, but you can. If you like to, Luke 5.27 and following. It says this, "After, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Same thing going on. All these chapters later, a couple years later, same thing going on in Luke 19.10, that only those who know they are sick, they and only they are glad to see a doctor. They and only they want to go and see the physician. Only those who know that they are lost, only they are glad when they see a seeking Savior. Only they welcome Him with joy and with gratitude when he comes. So, since Jesus has risen from the dead, since he has in fact overcome death, since he conquered the grave, and since he turns around and offers that kind of life to all who believe, behooves us to consider carefully what he has said and what he has taught. His mission statement, I think, seems like a very good place to start, don't you? So what we're going to do is conduct a little bit of investigation of this text this morning, sort of interrogate the text. We're going to engage in our investigation with the five W's and an H. You ever done that in your observation of the Bible? Asking those six questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. That's a good way to make observations of anything you're studying, you know, anything you see, but especially coming into the text. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And we're going to combine the the when and the where, so we'll turn a six-point sermon into a five-point sermon. I don't know what it is, but five points just has a real good ring to it, and I 
feel comfortable in five points. So by the time we finish, you're going to understand the mission of Christ and also how his mission reaches out to you. First question we can ask is, whom does Jesus seek and save? If you're writing down notes, you can take this down. Number one, whom does Jesus seek and save? Answer, the lost. You say it's right there in the text, the lost. That word is a verbal noun. It's known as a participle. It comes from the verb apolumi, which means to destroy or to kill, or it could mean to bring to ruin, bring to nothing, bring to futility, and that is the kind of lost that we are talking about. We've all had the experience, or many of us have had the experience, of being a, a young child uh, up to our father's thigh, maybe no, no higher than that, and being in a public place like a grocery store or a fair or a mall, and all of a sudden the leg that we touch is not our father's or our mother's. And so we look around, there's that panic we feel, this is not that kind of lost. This is the kind of lost, this is the kind of harrowing feeling when you're out in the middle of an ocean, dropped in the middle of the ocean, and there is no ship in sight, there's no rescue coming, hours and hours, totally without water, without food, there's nothing you can drink because anything you drink is going to, be, is going to speed your thirst, you're lost, you're helpless, you're desperate, and the only thing below you is a watery grave thousands of feet deep. That's the kind of lost that Jesus saves people from an eternity of hell before them. This is a kind of lost that means you're given up to destruction. You're left for dead. The participle is in the perfect tense. So this is, this is a person who is in a state of lostness. A condition of lostness. That's a condition of all sinners. He is talking here about the condition of all fallen humanity under divine condemnation because of their sins. All are in a state of destruction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are in this condition of ruination. They have been brought to nothing. Their life will result in nothing. All the things that they build, all the things that they construct, all the things that they work for, all the things that they endeavor to, to do, to earn, to achieve, absolute futility outside the saving work of Christ. The condition of the lost is so severe beyond all remedy that they are hopelessly lost. They are, they have like the sword of Damocles hanging over their head. They are about to be destroyed, completely ruined. Their fate is utter futility unless someone steps in and intervenes. Unless someone interposes to save. Luke's gospel is very interesting in this way that he doesn't use abstract language at all to describe the lost. He records story after story about Jesus seeking and saving lost people, and he uses very concrete language, concrete terms. He paints with vivid strokes and puts everything in living color that we can imagine, that we can identify with. In fact, if you sit, as you sit there right now, maybe think about a person that you would consider lost. Maybe consider, now think about a person, imagine a person in your mind eye, in your mind's eye, that, 
that comes to mind when you think about someone who is absolutely beyond hope, beyond redemption. In his pastoral prayer, Pastor Don just prayed for those who have just celebrated an absolute abhorrent wickedness in our country for the last month, and they'd actually like to extend that throughout the entire summer. Revel in their shame, glorying in their shame, celebrating what is an abomination to God and angers him. Maybe it's a person like that who's caught up in that movement. Maybe it's someone who has gone through a transition, transition hormones, transition surgery. Someone who's so disfigured themselves and it's so much time has gone on that it's hard to recognize them for what they really are. They become an absolute monstrosity. Perhaps it's a derelict who lives in the streets. Someone it's, maybe it's someone in your mind comes into your mind that you know who has been the hooks of some kind of terrible drug has gotten into them, into them and they have become completely destitute and degraded. Maybe it's someone who's given them over to sexual immorality in such a way that they have ruined every relationship and all they have in their wake is a, a, a litany of, of pain and sorrow and tragedy. Whatever comes to your mind, Luke has illustrated that kind of person in his gospel. That, that category of lostness is covered in Luke's gospel. I'm going to have you turn to a few passages in Luke's gospel. And for the sake of time, so warm up your fingers, get ready to turn some pages. I'm, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read each one thoroughly, but if you let your eyes scan the passage while I'm kind of describing the account, it'll help you to imagine several categories of lost people whom Jesus came to seek and to save. First, imagine someone who is lost in a physical sense. So physically, they are so far gone. The person has become completely dependent and has no hope to live a normal life. We might consider someone who is uh, in a paraplegic condition or a vegetative state as being lost in some sense. And Jesus, or uh, Jesus saved people like that. Luke portrayed people like that. He shows Christ's power to heal the paralytic back in Luke 5 and verse 17 to 26. Luke 5, 17 to 26. The paralytic you remember the story? He was only able to enter the house where Jesus was teaching because he had good friends who lowered him through the roof. They had to deconstruct the thatch and the plaster on the roof and, and basically pull, imagine someone doing that to your home, pulling your roof apart in order to lower their friend in. But seeing what Jesus did, it's understandable. He, Jesus saved him, saved him. Outright, fully. The man not only walked out of that house under his own power, but Jesus went further and forgave his sin. In fact, forgave his sin immediately. Luke portrayed someone in a, we could say in a vegetative state, but it's really worse than a vegetative state. If you go to Luke 7, 11 to 17, you can see that this person is in such a vegetative state that they are dead. Jesus raised the widow's son at the little village of Nain, while the people of the village with this grieving widow are all on the way to his funeral. And Jesus raised this widow's son from the dead and then gave him back to his mother. No hope in that village. No hope in that widow. The mourners, 
no hope in the whole procession. And Jesus stopped the procession mid-step, touched the man, touched his the funeral buyer, and raised him from the dead. Paraplegics, vegetative, dead people, Jesus is able to save those who are in that kind of a condition. Consider those next, lost in a social sense. That is to say, they're in such a condition, whether by intention or by just incidentally, that no one really wants them around. This is the kind of lost sinner who is portrayed as being socially lost. So think about a, an outcast, a social pariah who's excluded from the community. In Jesus' day, the quintessential example of this kind of lostness was a leper. A leper who was pushed out to the margins of society and Jesus encountered lepers in his ministry. In fact, he encountered one back, if you go back to Luke chapter 5, early in his ministry, Luke 5 through 12 to 14, there's a visible skin disease and he's been examined by the priest, and he's been remanded to the outskirts of the village, town, city. He has to live far away from everybody else. So lepers were shunned. They could not come into normal concourse of life. They could not come into the community. They couldn't come into the synagogue. They were cut off from religious worship, religious life, no community life for them. And Jesus healed Such a man, full of leprosy, the text says, and restored him completely. Then he sent him to the priests. So the man is completely healed, completely restored physically, but then he sends him to the priests. He wants him to go to the public health officials to get a full medical examination so he can be officially cleared in order that he can be restored fully and re-enter society. So no longer a pariah, no longer cut off from his people no longer excluded from the community, no longer excluded from worship. Jesus seeks and saves those who are lost in social senses as well, who have no hope of re-entering into society. No, they are like Gentiles who were cut off from God and without hope, without God in the world and cut off from his people. But God has shown that he can, in Christ, reconcile them and bring them near in Christ. Third, we can imagine the people who are lost in a moral sense, morally so far gone. In some cases, we think about people who are morally lost, people who are enslaved to sin, some kind of life-dominating sin, enslaved to greed, enslaved to corruption. These are those who are so far in that state that they know they are in that state. They know they're in that condition. They know they're sinners. They, they can feel their depravity every day. They can sense how far gone they are. And in fact, they've long since, since ceased feeling bad about it. They've become calloused in their hearts, just accepting their lot. That that's the kind of person that they are. In other cases, the moral lostness is due to the blinding nature of spiritual pride. Those who consider themselves to be religious or innately good, who are morally superior to everyone. They're on the right side of history. These people have become so in love with themselves and the positions that they hold and the people that they hang out with that they, because of blinding pride, cannot sense any conviction of conscience either. 
In that sense, deadened in their conscience, they are in the same condition, really, morally, as those who are at the other end of the spectrum. So this condition of moral lostness can exist at either end of the social spectrum, either end of the sin spectrum, those who are socially unacceptable and those who are sinning in more respectable ways. Luke brings two such people together in one narrative in Luke 7, 36 to 50, both of whom are totally lost. In Luke 7, 36 to 50, totally lost, but at opposite ends of the social spectrum. Jesus is having lunch at the house of a Pharisee named Simon, a man who thought so highly of himself, and he was so into his agenda to make Jesus look the fool in his midst, he failed to notice how significantly that he had insulted Jesus, failed to provide him with such basic hospitality as washing his feet as he came into his home. And in a day when everybody reclined at the table to eat and their feet were sticking out behind them, Jesus' feet, unwashed, would have stood out. In Luke seven forty four to 46, Jesus noted the oversight as a woman had come notoriously sinful woman had come and crashed the party. She was known in town probably because she had made her living as a prostitute, but she had been radically saved by the gospel at some point prior to this, and now she has come into Jesus. She's come in to worship Him. The Savior, having basically sought, drawn her out, He's found her, and He assures her, your faith has saved you Go in peace. Overcome with emotion. She does what Simon the Pharisee failed to do and weeping such tears, she drenches his feet, washing them completely clean, and she wipes them down with her hair. And Jesus used her example to show Simon, illustrating by contrast the evidence of true love. But one sinner morally lost. She was at the carnal and irreligious end of the spectrum. Couldn't associate with polite company. She was a shame and a pariah, and Jesus saw it, found, and saved her, drew her to himself. The other sinner at the socially acceptable end, the religious end of the spectrum, he's in the same condition, though. In fact, he's worse off than she is. He fails even to provide a modicum of respect to Jesus when she, when she does the exact opposite. She shows all honor, all reverence, bowing at his feet, kissing his feet, drenching his feet, washing them with her tears and wiping them with her hair. But he is so morally lost that he's been blinded by his religious pride. And that leaves him impolite, inconsiderate, discourteous, and critical-spirited. Will the scales fall from his blind eyes? Will he see his corruption in time? That's where the text leaves us at the end of that account with that question. We don't know. One more category, a fourth, is we talk about the supernaturally lost. The supernaturally lost, one who has been handed over to demonic power, come under the complete total control of demons by demonic possession. If you look at the next chapter, Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, an extended account. Luke describes Jesus meeting a supernaturally lost man. 
And Jesus had his disciples put him in the boat, get in the boat, and go to the other side of the lake with intentionality. Again, remember, he is on a search and rescue mission. This is what he is doing on earth. This is a man who the Father has given to him before, the, before time began. A man who has been elect for salvation, and Jesus goes to meet him. This man is in a condition, terrible condition, when Jesus finds him. He's severely possessed by a demon. For a long time, he'd worn no clothes, hadn't lived in a house, but he was living among the tombs, living in a graveyard. He's, he's a haunt. He's a ghost living in a graveyard. We read in the parallel account in Mark 5, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he'd wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he's wandering around, always crying out and cutting himself with stones. It's a horrible picture. And if we're able to, for a moment, look past the more ghoulish aspects of this scene and stop to remember, this is a fellow human being. This is, this is a man who's been created in the image of God. He was once, he is somebody's little boy. Someone's grandchild. And here he is as an image bearer of God and now put into this kind of a condition. You realize how pitiful this man's condition is. How hopeless his condition seems to be. It really does, should evoke our compassion. Once we get past the dread, once we get past the shock at the sight, we realize how far gone this man is. Jesus asked for the man's name. The demons took over control of the man's tongue and they answered, Legion, for we are many. The legion is a Roman military unit of 6,000 soldiers. So they're telling Jesus, whatever the truth is, they're telling Jesus, thousands of demons had entered this poor man and taken up their home in him. He's about as lost as anyone could get. Physically, socially, morally, he is possessed by a legion of demons. Sadly, I think we see people like that today all the time, lying on the streets of our cities. They seem to us to be gone, hopelessly lost, enslaved to drugs, degraded by horrible sins. They've just given up caring for themselves. They, care, they, they could care less what anybody thinks about them. They're just living in their own reality about six inches in front of their face. What if all the homelessness, great drug epidemic on our city streets, that which sociologists and psychologists have judged to be either a social issue or a psychiatric psychological problem, what if their diagnosis is way, way off? What if many of these are actually cases of demonic possession? No material solution for that, right? No material solution. No amount of money you can throw at the problem. There's no drug to treat the immaterial. The immaterial realities, supernatural things, are untouched by medication, drugs. The best the drugs can do is act like a set of pharmaceutical handcuffs to put on someone who is losing their minds. That's like the chains that you're trying to bind this guy with. Just trying to handcuff him. We do the same thing today with pharmacology. We try to 
handcuff the person, subdue their, their impulses so they don't hurt themselves or somebody else. There is no drug to treat his true, the true cause of his problems. That's the case for dealing with demons. And I'll tell you, it's true when you're dealing with the sin problem as well. Sin is the cause, and unconfessed sin is the cause of so many symptoms we see, even symptoms that show up in the body. David said, he even confessed, when I did not confess my sin, your hand upon me was heavy. It was like the fever heat of summer. I, my bones were wasting away. He was having physical symptoms because he was not confessing his sin. He was trying to suppress the conviction that he felt. Shame is like a nerve ending. When we feel shame, when we feel embarrassed, when we have a tendency to hide things, we need to take that as a nerve ending going off, just like if we put our hand close to a flame and we feel the heat and, the, and our, our brain tells our hand, pull away, dummy, or you're going to burn up. When we feel shame in our, and sense shame over guilt over our sin, that should be an immediate instinct to go directly to the Lord, confess that thing that he is bringing to mind. It's foolish to treat a sin problem, a supernatural issue, an immaterial issue by material means. Only Christ saves the lost. Amazingly, Jesus actually sought out this poor wretch. As it turns out, the demon-possessed man was the reason Jesus had his disciples sail across the Sea of Galilee so that Jesus could find him and save him and then redeploy him as an evangelist to reach his own people with the gospel. So, who did Christ come to seek and to save? The lost. No matter what comes to your mind, no matter what category of lost, how lost, how far they have wandered, no matter how hopeless the condition seems to be, no matter how ruined, no matter what the consequences they've fallen into, no matter what the litany of wreckage behind them in their lives, how degraded they've become, he came seeking people just like that in order to save them. All these pictures of lost people, those suffering physical maladies, those cast out, socially separated and ostracized, those corrupted morally, degraded and blind, those bound by malevolent supernatural powers or supernatural issues or bound by sin issues, all these pictures of lost people are designed, they're here for us to illustrate the common condition of every lost sinner in a spiritual sense. No matter what the external surface condition, what the presenting problem seems to be, these are pictures of us before a holy God. The picture of lostness includes me, and it includes you as well, if you'll accept the diagnosis. If you do accept the diagnosis, you'll be ready to see, to see the physician. You'll be ready to welcome the seeking Savior. So that's the who question. Next question, what does it mean? Number two, point number two in your outline, what does it mean for Jesus to seek and to save? What does it mean for Jesus to seek and save? To answer this question, turn to Luke chapter 15 with me. Luke 15 is another text that begins with controversy, actually. 
over Jesus ministering to the lost. And interesting, on his search and rescue mission, when he actually does his mission, when he is successful, people don't like it. People who do search and rescue missions today in a physical sense, first responders, military people, what do we call them when they're successful? Hero. Jesus, villain. Luke 15, 1-2, we read this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Very familiar complaint. Jesus, again, offends all propriety among the religious elites, especially as a famous rabbi, because he has the gall of engaging in table fellowship with the lost. The deplorables of society, those who are too far gone. And so Luke says in verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. That's singular, by the way. Even though Jesus tells three parables here, a shepherd seeking and saving his lost sheep, a woman seeking and finding her lost coin, and a father who seeks and saves his lost son, they are really all one and the same, telling the same story and making the same point. So what does Jesus mean in Luke 19.10 when he says it's his mission to seek and save the lost? Well, we've been prepared for the answer ever since Luke 15. So look at Luke 15, starting in verse 4. He told them this parable, verse 3, and then verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Backing up in the case of the lost sheep, that sheep is wolf bait. If the shepherd does not go out searching for it, find it, carry it home on his shoulders. In the same way, the lost sinner is ravaged by sin and by Satan and by other sinful abusers and victimizers in this very cruel and wretched world. Like A helpless sheep lost in the wilderness, a prey for every predator at the mercy of eating from a bad food source or drinking from a poison water source, subject to every pitfall and ditch and cliff and victimized by by disease. In the very same way, every lost sinner falls prey to sin, to degrading lusts, to controlling and enslaving desires, or the... Sins, lusts, controlling, slaving desires of others that are perpetrated upon them. I think of these children who are being, who are confused and being taught in a very confusing world to long for something that they shouldn't long for and then they're brought into hospitals and medical places that are supposed to be for the, for the good, to do no harm to the person in need. Instead, they mutilate their little bodies. 
What happens in 10 years, 15, 20 years for them? They find themselves cut up and disfigured. Thanks be to God that only Christ, when He comes seeking, He can find such a person. He's able to seek that person, find that person, know wherever they are, however deep the pit that they're in, however deep it is there, He's able to save them when He finds them. In the case of the lost coin, small dirty coin, perhaps of tarnished silver, wouldn't be easy to find and see in the dim light of the home. As a small coin, very easy to forget since its value is you know, essentially negligible. Its loss has little impact for most people. Not for this woman, but for most people. For, so if it falls between the floorboards or gets buried in the dirt floor of the home, that coin is gone and it's forgotten forever. Like that inanimate object, a dirty, tarnished silver coin lost in the dust of the dirty floor, sinners, they've been covered beneath the mire and the filth of a fallen world. Covered beneath the mire and the filth of their own sinful lives. Ignorant of their true condition. Oblivious about the wretchedness and the hopelessness of their situation until Christ notices. Ah, one coin's missing. He notices that there is a coin that is lost and unless he comes searching for it, like a small, seemingly insignificant coin of little value, there it would sit until judgment day, abandoned to a dreadful, inescapable fate. But no coin of Christ is without value. No possession of his is insignificant, and they are never forgotten by him. He will always come looking, seeking, actively searching, pinging, and whatever he seeks, he's sure to find. He's eager to reclaim it as his own. What others count as little value, he will find that coin, polish it up, make it shine with resplendent beauty, catching the light. He'll fix that coin, actually, in the crown of his own victory to display his saving and redeeming glory. Valuable. Safe in the arms of the shepherd, held in his loving hands. This is what it is to be sought, found, saved by Christ Jesus. Like what Spurgeon says about this, he says, In his carnation, Jesus came after the lost sheep. In his life, he continued to seek it. In his death, he laid it upon his shoulders. In his resurrection, he bore it on its way. In his ascension, he brought it home rejoicing. Our Lord's career is a course of soul winning, a life laid out for his people, and in it you may trace the whole process of salvation. End quote. So, born upon Jesus' shoulders, Christ's sheep are under his perfect protection. John 10 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, in fact, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand and I and the Father are one. Now, since we're in Luke 15, we just can't leave without reading some of the story of the prodigal son, right? Look at Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. In that part of the world and at that time, that meant basically, Father, I'm ready for you to go ahead and 
check out from this life. Go ahead and die so that I can get what's coming to me. He wishes his father dead. He's got no relationship with his father. He wants his inheritance. He wants it now. While he's still got youth and the ability to spend. Give me the share of property that's coming to me. And the father divided his property between him, between them, between his younger and older son. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. His character couldn't handle the burden of wealth. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He's got solution number one. I'm not going home. I've wrecked my reputation there. My father's dead to me. So I will degrade myself further. I've lost everything. My character is revealed. So I'm going to go start to work my way back. I'll start at the bottom. And for a Jewish boy feeding pigs, this is the ultimate shame. And no one gave him anything. No one feels sorry for this kid. But when he came to himself, verse 17, he said, huh, I got another solution. I'll fix my problem this way. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger, I know. I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, here's his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Interesting. He's not seeking a relationship with his father at this point. Some people point to this as repentance. This is not true repentance. He's not seeking a relationship with his father. He doesn't want to get reestablished in the home. Put me in the hired servants category. He rose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Why the father run to him? Yes, out of compassion, out of love, but also to protect him from the townspeople, the people in that village, who in the shame shown to this family by this son, they too felt the shame. They wanted to bring this kid to an account, bring him to a trial of a little bit of village justice and excommunicate him forever. You've counted your father dead to you. You are dead to your father. Get out of here, kid. So the father picks up his long robe and runs, embraces his son, kisses him, puts his protection around his son. That's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of Savior that we have. And the son starts his speech. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father cuts him off, says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring him back into my family. This is sovereign initiative. This is the father saving him even when he wasn't trying to be saved. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found. They begin to celebrate. When Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost, he is talking about a grave condition. 
a mortal danger. A twisting of the mind so that even if we are out in that ocean surrounded by nothing but water on every horizon, no ship in sight, no rescue coming, nothing below us but depth, crushing depth. And if someone were to come in our lost condition and throw us a life preserver, with whatever we had, we'd try to set it on fire and burn the rope. That's the condition that the lost sinner is in. That lost sinner, spiritually lost, needs to be plucked out of that ocean and put into the ship, the ark of refuge, of safety in Jesus Christ. This is a very, very bad condition to be in. But Christ came to conduct a rescue mission. He came for the purpose of seeking, which continues until he finds, and the search is not over until the lost one that he seeks is found. The means he employs, namely that of seeking the lost, is sufficient for the end for which he purposed it, namely that of saving the lost. In other words, what he seeks, he finds. And what he finds, he saves. And when he saves, he saves fully, finally, eternally, and to the uttermost. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Eternal, not just in longevity. Eternal in quality, in kind. The very life that God has in himself given to the people he saves. So we've got the who, we've got the what. Here are the third and fourth questions combined into point three. Number three, when and where does Jesus seek and save? Third point, when and where does Jesus seek and save? Short answer, Whenever and wherever the lost may be. Like a loving shepherd, he seeks the lost sheep all over the countryside, over hill and dale, until he finds that lost sheep. Like the woman in her home, lighting a lamp, sweeping her house, diligently seeking in the same way Christ searches for his own. However long it takes, whatever cost, he does what it takes. And whenever and wherever they are, he finds them. Jesus sought and found Simon Peter his brother Andrew, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, first while they were with John the Baptist near the Jordan River, and then later in Galilee on a fishing trip. He saved them and he called them to lifelong discipleship and apostleship. Jesus sought and found Levi when Levi was sitting in a tax booth. He saved him, called him to discipleship, then turned him into an apostle, called him to be an apostle. In fact, this man Levi, also known as Matthew, Wrote a gospel you may have heard of, saved to the uttermost, saved fully. Jesus sought and found the sinful woman, as we saw, while having lunch at the home of Simon the Pharisee in the midst of a very hostile crowd. Religiously minded, attentive, church-going scribes and Pharisees. In fact, many of the lost sheep that Jesus sought and found were in synagogues. They were attending worship services really is worth keeping in mind every time we go to church, isn't it? But in the most unlikely places, and in the most unlikely, even inconvenient times, in unlikely circumstances, Jesus seeks, finds, and saves his lost people. Story after story after story. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus seeks the lost whenever they are and wherever they may be in whatever condition they may be in. It just doesn't matter. Nothing 
Nothing stays, nothing uh, prevents him from getting his job done. In fact, when we get into Luke's second volume, in the book of Acts, though Christ is risen from the dead, though he's ascended into heaven, even from heaven he's still doing his rescue mission. He's doing the same thing, seeking and saving the lost. We read about the young zealot Saul, who was traveling from Jerusalem on the Damascus Road with authority in hand and permission from the Sanhedrin. Luke says in Acts 9 verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might find them. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saved him at that very moment when Saul wasn't seeking him. And from that moment on, on that road, on his way to engage in religious persecution, the jailing and execution of followers of Jesus Christ, he's radically saved. Saul starts preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. He's aggressively preaching Jesus as the risen Christ, the promised Messiah, Lord over all. What explains that? What explains that absolute transformation? transformation? Only the mission of Christ to seek, find, save to the uttermost. He's driven by divine power, even from heaven. He's not prevented. He's not slowed down at all in accomplishing his mission. He keeps doing his work. He's deployed his Holy Spirit now. And his Holy Spirit is everywhere he wants to be. And by the Spirit, working in and through the members of his church, preaching this saving gospel, he keeps on doing the same thing. He sends Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch by the Spirit, a high court official, this Ethiopian eunuch. He's traveling by chariot, and he is radically saved, sends Philip to seek and save him. He sends Peter to Caesarea by the Spirit, again, to the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, to preach the gospel. And Cornelius is saved along with his entire household, saved by the preaching of the gospel. He again sends Paul and Barnabas, by the Holy Spirit, again, sends Paul and Silas. They are commissioned by the Spirit. And they go out in the Spirit to seek and save the lost, those whom the Father has given to his Son, those whom Christ died for. And he goes seeking and saving all of those all over the Roman Empire. He sends Paul into Philippi to a prayer meeting down at the river. He finds Lydia and some others gathered with her He sends Paul and Silas then into a Philippian jail because there's a lost jailer there who needs to be found as well. And he finds him, saves him, along with his whole household. And he got the start of the church in Philippi, one of the most generous, model, exemplary churches in the New Testament. We can go on, story after story after story, in the historical records of the gospel, in the historical record of the book of Acts, throughout the history of the Christian church as well, down to this very day, We are all stories found here as well. Jesus Christ is still seeking the lost. Whenever they are, in whatever age or time period they may live, wherever they may be, to the uttermost parts of the earth, in whatever condition they may be in, as the risen Savior, resurrected by divine power, having conquered sin, death, demons, every foe, nothing 
Nothing will prevent Jesus from seeking and saving the lost. So we've seen the who, what, when, and the where of Christ's mission. Why does he do it? Why does he do it? What is the purpose in seeking and saving? Fourth question, number four, why does Christ come to seek and to save? Why does Jesus come to seek and to save? Well, if you go back to Luke 19.10, we can see that the answer is there in what Jesus has said. It's subtle, but it is clearly there. The Son of Man came, and then maybe add the words in your mind as you read, in order to seek in order to save the lost. Those infinitives, to seek and to save, they tell us why Christ came, that that is the purpose of his coming, which we've summarized briefly, but it's in that title, the Son of Man. And then the main verb in the sentence, he came. The Son of Man, he came. In that, we find a greater and ultimate purpose at work here. I only have time to maybe summarize this point briefly, but the title, Son of Man, that is a messianic title, and it points to the various roles of the Messiah, the Christ, which God had ordained for Christ from before the foundation of the world. So in the ultimate sense, Jesus came to seek and save because he is being obedient to an eternal calling. He's executing God's decree from before the foundation of the world. He's executing the Father's will. As the Son of Man, Jesus is the ideal man. He is the perfection of all hu- of humanity. He is the one who will represent man to God and God to man. He is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is in perfect religious, or, or perfect, I should say, righteous sympathy to the concerns of God, but also to the concerns of man. And he is the one who wields absolute power and all divine authority. Daniel 7.14 says, The Ancient of Days has given the Son of Man dominion and glory and everlasting and indestructible kingdom. So the entire world, every human being, without exception, belongs to him and will serve his purposes. He's come first in mercy, offering salvation, and when he comes next, he will come to recompense and dispense justice. People will either bow because they've been converted and they love the Lord Jesus Christ and the Son of Man, or they will be forced to bow, bowing before his rod of iron. Let's take a look at one text just to illustrate this. Back in Luke 4, beginning of Jesus' mission as he goes into his own hometown to the people of Nazareth, Nazareth, where he revealed himself as the Messiah, the Christ, in Luke 4.18. Well, we'll start, actually we'll start in back in verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where he stops. That's coming from Isaiah 61.1. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this, this scripture, 
This one in particular has been fulfilled in your hearing. As I said, the words he read from the scroll of Isaiah came from Isaiah 61, which describes the Messiah's mission to seek and to save. And what's so interesting, he stopped short. He did not read the whole passage. He read verse 1, started into verse 2, and then cut it off abruptly mid-verse. If he had kept on reading, here's what the rest of the verse says. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it continues, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus stop mid-verse? Why didn't he read the rest of that verse and tell everybody about the day of the vengeance of our God? Why didn't he accentuate the accountability that they would have in his presence? Why didn't he tell them about this? Because at his first coming, Jesus came for salvation. He said, come, all of you, come and eat. Come without money and buy wine and milk and eat and drink. He's tender. He's showing kindness. He came for salvation. We're still living in this gospel age. It's the mission of Christ's church to teach this very gospel, to proclaim this saving message, to spread it around the earth, to make disciples by amplifying God's love in the gospel. When Christ returns to earth at his second coming, when the day of vengeance of our God is set and he comes again, he will come at that time for retribution. There is an account. There is a debt to be paid, a debt of justice. Jesus taught about it, as did the apostles. And there's one summary text we can find where Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1.6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you believers and to grant you relief who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed." That will be quite a celebration. That will be quite the congregation to be all of us together, my church, your church, all faithful churches coming together to marvel at him. The day of the vengeance of our God, that's coming. That's coming. And the time is now to take advantage of the opportunity to repent and believe because today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. While we're still living out the first part of the Messiah's mission, which Jesus proclaimed in that Nazareth synagogue 2,000 years ago. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom for all who are oppressed. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed the lost whom Jesus came to seek and save, everyone who sees himself in those terms, in that lost condition, by God's mercy, by his grace in Jesus Christ, through faith in him, he will find them, he will save them. Why? Because Jesus loves his lost sheep. Because he died to save them. 
Paul put it in very personal terms in Galatians 2.20. He said, the Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. He says something parallel to the Ephesians and he extends that, that, that sense of affection, personal affection for him. He extends it to all believers in Ephesians 5.2. God loved uh, or Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. It's personal. It's relational. We've been foreknown from before the foundation of the world. Loved. The mission of Jesus Christ is a mission of love. To come, to seek, to save those whom the Father had given to him. He comes to us He comes to demonstrate the Father's love by dying in our place, to bring the Father's love to us by saving us from our sins. 2 Thessalonians 2.16, God our Father loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Why does Jesus come to seek and save? It's to fulfill the first stage in Christ's rescue mission. To bring divine love and salvation to whoever, all who will ever believe. Final question, number five in your outline, if you're taking notes, number five, how does Jesus seek and save? How does he do it? What's the means by which Jesus seeks or saves his people from their sins? It's by dying for their sins, by taking their place, by stepping into the place, the target area pushing them out of the way and taking the penalty that they deserved. It's a substitutionary sacrifice to satisfy the just wrath of a holy God. He came to die for their sins. He said this in the previous, we're in Luke 19, 10. He said this in the previous chapter in Luke 18, 32 to 33. The son of man will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, And after flogging him, they will kill him. And then this, on the third day, he will rise. Why would the sinless son of man be mocked, treated with contempt, spat upon, flogged, killed? Did he deserve it? He's without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And thus he is the only truly innocent victim who has ever lived. Ever. He did nothing to deserve death. Not one sin did he commit. Christ suffered for our sins. The just for the unjust, because he chose to offer himself up as a substitute for our sins. Dying the death that we deserve so that God could give us the reward of life that he deserved. Jesus merited life for us in the gospel. The suffering of the Messiah for sins is detailed all over the Old Testament. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, as you know, is such a rich, rich text. But we can summarize the message in what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, very familiar text. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's what that means. God placed on Jesus the sins of all lost sinners whom Christ came to save. And he punished, God the Father punished him instead of us. He poured out his full 
unmitigated wrath on Jesus on the cross. And then God took the righteousness of God in Christ, a perfect righteousness, and he placed that righteousness on us, on all those and only those who believe. That's how he did it. It was an act of pure mercy. And, by the way, an act of perfect justice. Because Jesus satisfied both the mercy and the justice of God. Not one sin is ignored in this redemption. Not one sin is dismissed. Not one sin is overlooked, let go, which means divine justice has been satisfied. And not one ounce of saving mercy is wasted. Not one desire to show compassion goes without being fulfilled. All mercy poured out on his people an effectual call to save all those he came looking for. That's his will. That's his intent. And Jesus is still about the business of seeking and saving. The one distinguishing trait of every lost sinner who is found, who is saved by the Lord, they believe. They believe. Believing is seeing. Truly seeing things only perceived spiritually. And when they believe, it, faith, God's grace, washes over mind, will, and emotions so they understand, apprehend, understand, assent to, embrace with their, with their intellect, then they embrace with their affections. It moves and stirs their, all their emotions, grabs a hold of their heart so that they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in their wills are engaged completely and they give themselves to the work that God has assigned them to do. They are obedient. That's what true faith is. It's an obedient faith where the whole of us, the whole of our heart, mind, will, and emotions is involved. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are only transient, passing The things that are unseen are eternal. Only faith gives us eyes to see. Only those with eyes to see, faith to believe, will see the Lord when he returns. Only they will marvel at him. Only they will rejoice at his returning. Others will cower. Others will call to the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. So whom does Jesus seek and save? Sinners like me, sinners like all of you, sinners as bad as you can imagine in your mind's eye, broken and decrepit, morally corrupt and defiled, blind and proud, supernaturally bound, enslaved to sin, oppressed by the devil, sinners like you and like me. What does it mean for Jesus to seek and save? It means he comes for us. By the Holy Spirit, he opens our eyes to our sinful condition. He shows us our need for salvation, that we are nothing more than spiritually poor, captives of sin, blind to the truth, oppressed by sin and by Satan. And the Spirit draws us to Christ, lets us see our Savior, and that Savior takes us up into his arms as a loving shepherd carries his sheep on his shoulders. When and where does Jesus seek and save? It's whenever and wherever he wills. 
Wherever his lost sheep are, in whatever condition they are, whenever they live, he is there then and there to find them. He found them all during his physical presence on the earth. Not one of them was lost, overlooked by him. And then he finds them now by his omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent spirit of God who his, whom he has given to his people. They go out with the gospel. They preach the truth. They are lost sinners who've now been redeemed and they go out on a rescue mission of their own. That's all of us, folks. We belong to Christ and we go out with the confidence that all those who are his, they will all respond. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. Why does Jesus seek and save? It's all for the sake of God's glory, isn't it? It's all in obedience to the divine mission. It's to love the people the Father gave him, to save them from their, from their sins, to bring them into the freedom of eternal life, an eternal kind of life that comes from God. And finally, how does Jesus seek and save? He died on the cross for all who believe. He came to pay the just penalty due for their sins, to deliver them all from the wrath of God. He showed God showed his approval and his acceptance of this perfect, one and only substitutionary sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead. Lost sinner, if he's calling you, won't you come to him now today? Jesus said in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. If you put your faith in the one you cannot see, can see and read for yourself on the pages of Scripture, but if you put the, your faith in the one you cannot see, who is not physically standing in front of you now, with your physical eyes you can't see him, but because you see him with spiritual eyes, with the eyes of faith, you will rejoice with inexpressible joy and full of glory. You will obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You saints, you who have been redeemed, you, have, you, have, you who were once lost but now found, once blind but now able to see, when he returns one day, we all together will see him as he is. He will be glorified in and among his saints on that day. He will be marveled at by all of us who believed as we share eternally in resurrection life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for a seeking, saving Savior. We thank you that you chose us in him from before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in your sight. We thank you, our Father, for your kindness to us, that you chose us without any merit of our own, but all according to your good pleasure. According to your perfect will, Jesus does this seeking and saving work. We thank you that he is perfect. His batting average is a thousand. He has never dropped one charge, one soul he has not, that you've given him he has not lost. And so we go forward with the same mission, rejoicing to do your will and to carry on Christ's mission while we have breath. We thank you that you've made us a part of churches that are sound and faithful and preaching this glorious, magnificent gospel about a majestic Savior, a powerful, powerful search and rescue operator who accomplishes his mission. And now he does it by the Spirit in and through us. We rejoice to be part of your work. We ask that you'd help us to be faithful to the end, especially in very dark days around us when it's such a poignant rescue mission, so needful. And we ask as Pastor Don prayed from the very beginning, 
that you would bring revival in our lands through the preaching of your word. We pray this all for your glory, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.